Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of Future Food Weekly, as we're now calling it. I'm Sonali Figueres from Green Queen, along with my co-host Steve Molino. We're bringing you all the future food news every week, live. How are you, Steve? I'm good. I'm good. And it's actually funny. We So for, for our, our listeners out there, we, Sonali and I catch up right beforehand and we always, right before we do the podcast, we always say we're going to keep it really short and just jump right into the podcast. We talked for so long just now, Sonali. Like, I feel like my voice is going. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> yes, our conversations are, our pre-pod conversations are just getting longer and longer. We're going to need to, soon it's going to be just half a day and then the whole day, so. <laughs> yeah, and I get revved up. <laughs> I know. And there's just so much to talk about. Um, Obviously, still a very difficult situation and with some horrific uh, visuals and videos coming out of, of the Middle East. And we're still sending all our thoughts and prayers to everyone affected there. And, and please donate if you can um, and help, you know, any way you can. If, if you know people there, send them your your love, thoughts and, and, and kind words. It's just, it's really, it's really difficult. So we want to, we want to be um, respectful and acknowledge that. Um, but there is also just so much going on in the world of food news this this past week felt like basically like six months ago or eight months ago I just couldn't believe how many press releases I got and just how many announcements there were it definitely felt like there was a a, a rev up in activity no I agree I mean this this the newsletter this week has so much good stuff I think it it's actually sometimes it's hard to say what do we want to talk about this week and what do we want to bring up this was the opposite where i'm like okay we can only talk about a handful of things how do i choose so i this was an exciting week absolutely and and just everyone remember steve and i touch on a few of the stories but there are so many stories in the newsletter and even more stories on our website um we try and keep up on our linkedin but it's just it's nonstop. And so the goal is with Steven, we we pick some of the stories that we think are the most interesting to talk about. So yeah, week, you definitely don't want to listen to my voice, talk through every single news story. No one wants that. I don't want that. <laughs> I kind of want that. <laughs> a narrator. We'll see. Um, oh, God. So the big story this week is that um, Japanese plant-based meat company dies. Uh, raised 1.7, I'm sorry, 7.1 billion yen, which is about, um, you know, 47 and a, and a bit of change million US dollars in a Series C round. Um, according to the company, it was the largest sum raised for a food tech company in Japan. Um, the round was a mix of equity and debt. Interestingly enough, some of the debt and the uh, some of the debt funding came from um, basically government investment vehicles, including from the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the Ministry of Agriculture. Um, Dayas makes vegan analogs um, using a proprietary soy germination tech. And in fact, there are name Dayas, which I don't even know if I'm pronouncing right for a Japanese, is, um, is equivalent to the Japanese meaning for soybean and I think artificial intelligence. Weirdly, um, anyway, hmm. um, very interesting again, uh, because it's a big round. So it's one of the bigger rounds we've seen after the Umiyami round that came in from the French company. 
Um, similar to Umiyami, there's some government action in the deal. Um, once again, it's a deal that's not in the U.S. We're not seeing any deals in the U.S. really. All the deals are really happening either in Asia or in especially in Europe. And um, it's just, it's interesting and something, you know, I've certainly talked about for many years in Asia, there's just such a different take on food technology and its importance for, for national food sovereignty and food security for many countries in, in a region where we have lots of people, rising protein demand, um, growing middle classes, not enough arable land, water scarcity, and a, a very unfair share of extreme weather related events in the region that you know make agriculture even more risky. Yeah, this this is such an interesting round and, and it, it really highlighted for me how I'm underinformed on the sustainable food and alternative protein landscape in, in Japan. Um, like like my firm, like we 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 look at at deals internationally, but it's it's heavily North America based, heavily European, a little bit in the Middle East. But um, it's like Japan, we we our deal flow is is I'd say pretty limited, and it's it it probably shouldn't be, or maybe I don't know. I don't know how many companies are coming out of here, but like you look at the the Japanese market, like it's a from a population standpoint, it's a it's a decent sized country like they're they're they have over 150 million people and um and clearly there's an appetite here no pun intended for for alternative proteins i think that this it sounds like what this company is working on is really interesting and it has an ability to work in different analogs and on the egg side uh, like that's that's a that's a i know like japan is a very large consumer of eggs so if they have a really good analog there then this could be successful and and I, I, I it, it also seems like even though the name that you mentioned focuses on on soybeans and possibly AI, which I don't understand, but um, it, it sounds like they can also use their tech to um, apply it to pea, pea protein or peas and possibly other crops. So it, it sounds like a really interesting uh, company. And I love the non-dilutive aspect of some government funding and um it's it's really interesting. So at the Series C stage, my head just goes to like I hope that they're focusing on like either they're already profitable or they're hitting profitability and um, becoming like a truly sustainable company from a, a business standpoint. But uh, really, really interesting, uh, interesting well, deal. Well, if you're looking at a, a company based on the founder, he is a serial entrepreneur who has had multiple successes. So he actually. Um, founded one of the largest biopharmaceutical consulting companies in Japan. And he also mm -hmm. founded um, Kachitsudo, which um, has since become the largest organic vegetable company in, in Japan. Um, I think, so I think, I think, you know, this is an experienced founder who, who has like built, scaled and sold companies. Um, and that's, that's not surprising then. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny you mentioned eggs because Japan has been grappling with, um, a shortage of eggs and also really, really high egg prices because of avian flu outbreaks and global supply issues that we also saw obviously affect the U.S. Um, and so it, it, it'd be, it, it's interesting if any of that kind of affected uh, or motivated some of the deal. But once again, the really big difference here in Asia, and you see this a lot in the Japanese market, you see it in Singapore, you see it in Korea 
a very exciting alt protein market that like was really nowhere a few years ago and then is now one of the hottest markets in the region. Um, Japan had a little bit more going on a few years ago and then it kind of got quiet and it started picking up again. But the big difference with how the markets for all proteins have evolved in Europe and in in the US, especially in the US, is that in Asia, you really see big food players getting involved much earlier and you see just so much more of a government play. So, yeah, and it's and it's also really interesting. No, go ahead. No, that's it. Yeah, no, I was just saying, like, it's also like really interesting because, like, the the article, like, it, it calls this out, but like, like the Japanese consumer, they're used to meat alternatives that are that have been around for a long time, whether it's like seitan or the like tofu or anything like that. Like, that's that's been around. In, in their cultural norm for a while. So um, I, I mean, like, I just need to get more educated on that market. And like, if any of our listeners are really well informed on, on the Japanese alt protein market, like, I'd love to talk to you because it's like, my head would assume like, oh, they don't really need the alternatives as much because they're used to either not having them or they have alternatives that have been around for a while. But like, clearly this type of raise from one company shows like there is a real appetite there for the alt protein approach. Um, it's really cool. It's really interesting. Yeah, let's let's hope for more more deals around this. And and also really remember that Asia is the is the the real region where we have a dearth of protein compared to the West, where honestly people overconsume protein and there's fewer and fewer people. In Asia, we have more and more people and the demand is going up and we just we don't have enough land and resources to produce enough protein, whether it's animal or otherwise. So al alternative protein in Asia is really much more additive protein and it's really much more de-risking the food system. So it's a very mm. different play and it's just like a very, it's very different fundamentals. So we need yeah, to- Yeah, no, such it. a good point. Yeah. Um, what else? So that's the big story. What else caught your eye this week? There, there's a lot, but what, what do you want to bring up? I, I really liked one of the deep dives that you and your team did. So the deep dive, how to design a meat tax that benefits everyone. Um, so it's mentioned that government stakeholders across the world are, are discussing potential meat taxes to potentially reduce animal consumption or animal product consumption, uh, mainly focused on, on mitigating the effects of climate change. And then like one of the arguments against this is that it would unfairly overburden the lower income households, which makes sense. If, it, if things just become more expensive, it's going to be much harder. Or it's going to have a much harder hit on lower income households. I, I mean, just this idea of a meat tax is it, I could you can you can sit and noodle on this all day. Like this is such an interesting idea from like how efficacious would it be, how tumultuous would it be would would like i i think i put something out out on linkedin like probably over a year ago where i was like if you wanted to start a world war just like take away people's meat or tax people's meat and obviously that was hyperbolic but um i really think that depending on the region and the approach to to basically taking into account the environmental impact of meat and putting that in, in 
in the prices of meat. I think that that's like a really delicate issue. Um, and like sometimes on this, like I was, I was reading it and it's like, one of my thoughts sometimes is like, do we need to make sure that everyone has access to the amount of meat that they currently consume? Like in my mind, if meat becomes a luxury product, some people can't afford luxury product. So like you don't see like subsidies for lobster here in the U S or other high end products, but then the, the opposite side is like, well, from a nutrition standpoint, there's still a lot of arguments that, that people feel like they need to have certain meats in or animal products in their diet. So that would be a big issue. Um, and then the last thing I'd say on this is like, I really believe that you can't make this a direct tax. Like it can't just be a blatant tax, like X percent higher on animal products. Like in the U S we have like vice taxes on like tobacco and other vices. I think if meat was put into that bucket, it would be, it would, there would be, honestly, I think there could be like a, 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 a civil war. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I where you're going. Yeah. Farmers are too important. I mean, just speaking, forget about everything else. Just let's talk political importance. Farmers are too important. Like you can't do that. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and I mean, like, it's part of like, people's I, I lives. Like a direct tax. I mean, we've written about meat taxes before. We talked about, we did a whole piece a few years ago on how Hong Kong needs a meat tax. I mean, let's be honest, the most extreme animal rights and food climate activists are obviously pro a meat tax, like anything to get people to reduce meat. Um, you could also look at it in a different way and say, well, maybe we don't tax meat, but maybe we take away the subsidies, which is a form of mm -hmm. keeping meat cheap. You know, you were saying, well, we don't make sure that everybody gets to eat lobster, but we certainly do make sure that everyone gets to eat cheap chicken. So, mm -hmm. you know, you could look at it that way. Um, we know for a fact that in, especially in the United States, the word tax just like is too polarizing. You can't even, use it, right? <laughs> I mean, it's very much, I mean, if you look at like the IRA and how that regulation came through in the U.S. versus, you know, some type of similar regulation in Europe, Europe is much more of a tax-led kind of, you know, carrot or stick, stick-led approach. U.S., it's got to be the carrot, right? Mm-hmm. We know that. Yeah, and it's such a it's such an interesting point. Like, and like maybe the approach is like instead of taxing meat or like I love the idea of redirecting subsidies, but um, like away from the meat space. But maybe it's some type of tax credit if you're if somehow you could prove that what you consume as a household is is better for the environment, more plant based or whatever. Maybe you get some type of tax tax break. So it's in essence doing the same thing, but in a in a more carrot way. Exactly. But what's interesting here, one of the things that I found interesting in the research that we wrote, some of the research that we wrote about was that the, the study, the main study that we're talking about, um, talked about channeling revenue back to consumers as monthly or annual um, transfers. So creating a taxation, but then kind of rewarding the customers. And it would, they called it like akin to paying climate dividends. That's such a weird idea. It's a weird idea, but it's interesting. I mean, it kind of falls into this whole kind of, you know, climate accounting space, which when you start to get into like offsets and credits and all that, but it's it's just interesting how they, I, I think we, what's, what I liked about this study and I, what I liked about this piece is 
just having the conversation and thinking about all the different ways we can do this. And like, I almost feel like you need like a meat tax symposium where you just get everyone in a room that kind of is, is involved in this kind of thing, either policymakers, um, even like, you know, tax folk, accountants, and, and look at it, the whole problem and figure out what would work the best. And then you get in the behavioral scientists and you look at like how consumers would react and then how businesses would react. But we need to uh, yeah. be looking at different ways to to price in the externalities of livestock agriculture. Like we just, we really need to be doing that. I fully agree. And I love that idea of like this like consortium or group of, of, of really smart people all working on on this and thinking it through. I do have to say though, like, I feel like, I don't have to say it, right? But like, I feel like uh, compelled to say, like, I think that this is an impossibility in the U.S. Mm. In other other regions of the world, like, there's, I think there's a possibility that some type of solution around this pricing and the real environmental impact of meat can be priced into the product. I think that makes sense. Like, I think it's possible. I think there's no chance in the U.S. At least not in anytime soon. Um, Given the political, I'd love to be wrong. And the polarization, I'd be inclined to agree with you. I mean, yeah, it just, what can yeah. actually be passed that like will make it like that is bipartisan? I mean, there's no way this would be bipartisan. Anyway, no, nothing. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> but what but, about what about let's let's move on from this topic. I would love to hear from listeners what they think about this because it's just, like the meat pack. It's such an interesting idea. But but moving on from that, what did you what did you find interesting? I mean, I, I like to see big moves by governments and, and, and changes in kind of policy. I, I do believe that we need that to go forward. So this kind of, it, it we are taking a leap from the meat tax. It, it is similar and related, but so the story around Denmark introducing the world's first national action plan to promote plant-based foods, like I, I think that's fantastic news. Um, again, we don't know how it's going to work. We don't know if it's going to have a diff, we don't, we don't know that it's going to make a difference, but we know, we know from Germany and the numbers coming out of Germany and just how many flexitarians are in Germany. I think 10% of the population is vegetarian. Um, we know that they're reducing, they're both reducing animal meat consumption and they are also increasing the, the purchase of plant-based alternatives. We know this is happening in Germany. And one of the reasons is because they have a minister, a minister of health and nutrition who is actively speaking out about the importance of reducing meat in their diet. And the fact that Denmark is taking this step, I mean, you know, it's a small country. There's not that many people, but it, it a lot of our most progressive kind of policies have come from Scandinavian countries and then they sort of trickle out to the, to some other parts of the world. So I just think this is a really strong signal. Um, I, I think that if you try and imagine something like this happening in the U S we just had the same similar conversation. Like I, I can't see it happening for a long time. I mean, the U S government still doesn't even mention food as a main kind of climate topic, but I, I just think this is such a positive sign and it will inspire others. I agree. I agree. And I mean, like, yeah, this, I, I don't see this happening in the U S but like, 
for for Denmark, like this is it's probably a little indicative of what the overall population is thinking, like you mentioned, but like they're they're putting it into their actual plans and their policies. And then also it, like like they do actually put money towards this. It's not a crazy amount, right? I think what was it like 90 million or something like that, 90 million euro or some something along those lines, which sounds like a lot of money, but for like shifting a food system, it's really not that much. But that's not really the point. It's the idea that they're calling out that change needs to happen. They're putting it into their plans and policies, and then they're creating access to capital for solutions to be had from that. And and I don't think that venture capital is the solution to all of this. Like we, there's a it's a totally different mechanism of of taking capital and allocating it to to places. And VC is about for profit enterprises and 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 building building big companies that way. Um, I, I think that. that doing it through the government it changes the incentives it allows for more r&d and research to be done which is really important absolutely and just to be clear this is part of a of an entire plan that denmark put together starting in 2021 where they established dietary guidelines that called for a reduction in meat and dairy consumption they also introduced a fund for plant based foods um where they basically got something like a record blowing amount of applications. They got like a hundred applications for for um an allocation of only a seven million budget. So so basically like they just it was oversubscribed. They put a billion kroner aside, which is about 168 euros million to advance the sector sector with 90 million going to what what we talked about, the fund for plant-based food. But the rest was for bonuses to farmers who grow plant-based protein crops for human consumption. So there's a holistic view here. It's one, we make it public as a messaging. The narrative is reduce me. Two, we put funds towards innovation to come up with alternatives and, and solutions. Three, we support farmers in transitioning. This is like a whole entire thing. I, I love it. It's and and again, you mentioned it. Is, is Denmark the biggest country in the world? No, but like this is this is showing leadership in my mind from a, a public policy, a government standpoint. So, um, real big kudos to them. Absolutely, this is this is what climate leadership looks like. And let's let's see more of this, please, from around the world. So, what else? What what's our what's our positive story of the week to end on? Yeah, well, again, I think some of the things that we talked about are pretty positive, which is awesome. Uh, but the, I wanted to call out that Lidl, so Lidl is, is a, a retailer in Germany. They just said that they are introducing price parity to uh, animal-derived foods for the majority of their own private label plant-based alternative brand, uh, Vimondo. Uh, that's the name of the brand. Um, and not only are they introducing, making them, uh, putting them at price parity to meat, and animal products, but they're also placing them in the store directly next to their the animal product counterparts. So if there's traditional meat put in a certain spot, then the the plant-based one will be right next to it. And same for any of the other products. That is so awesome to me. So like from a positive news standpoint, like one of the things that has been talked about in this space for so long is like 
I know like Impossible and Beyond, they've, they've, they've made a really big push in the U.S. and probably elsewhere to put themselves next to meat in the meat section. Right. And, and then they're work, and then they're working on price parity. Credit where credit is due. It was Beyond Meat because they went into retail way before Impossible and it, it started at Whole Foods in Colorado. So credit to Whole Foods for going for it and for Beyond Meat for doing it. They were the real, the first to say meat and meat alternatives should be right next to each other. 100%. And all that you just did is highlight how you're, you're just so much more knowledgeable on this than me, which I love. That's good. That's why we have not just me talking, right? Um, <laughs> and, but the problem, is, but, the, but they don't address price parity, right? And because they're trying, they're doing their best. They will constantly try to reduce their prices and, and reach price parity of commoditized meat products. So they're working on it. But one of the things that I'm so excited about here is that Lidl, this retailer in Germany, they're changing prices and they're making it the same as meat products. And then they're putting it in the same spot across all of these different categories. And I'm so curious to see what the data is on this, like in a year from now, like, because everyone, there's all these reports and assumptions about like price elasticity, like if prices drop for plant-based meat or all, all protein products, then then sales will go higher, right? That's the general idea of like price elasticity. And we don't know that for sure. It hasn't been confirmed. This is an actual opportunity to confirm that. And that's gonna be really, really valuable. And I, I can't wait to see what comes out of this. I mean, thank God we had the Japan story. So otherwise I'm gonna have to call this European Future Food Weekly. Because <laughs> is, I mean, go Europe. I mean, the meat tax research was from Europe. Denmark, story, Europe. Lidl, German retail. I mean, go Europe. Like, there really yeah. is so much momentum to try and move the dial. Not saying it's all perfect. But there is leadership. There's public stances. There's, you know, changing narratives. And we are seeing that it is having an impact. One of the stories we came out with this week was around flexitarians and the numbers around the world because a bunch of studies came out. So we decided to do one that looked at the whole world and it's, it's Europe is leading. Surprisingly, Asia is coming up. And guess what? The US is majorly lagging in terms of population of flexitarians, by the way. Yeah, I mean, we're lagging in like so many areas, but yeah, around that for sure. <laughs> so, but you're so right, right? Like this is like- Credit where credit not, is. Per perfect change isn't going to happen globally all at once in, in lockstep with, with every other country, but it would be really nerve wracking if there was no positive change and no real leadership in shifting our food system in a better direction. And- Europe is crushing it. They really are. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it. Europe is not immune to many issues that are facing the U.S. And to be honest, Europe has plenty of problematic political issues with lots of like movement to the far right in certain countries. But overall, the message is go team. You know, let's yeah. talk. Let's put 
climate at the top of the agenda and let's bring food into the discussion. And, you know, credit where credit is. So, yeah, some really strong leadership and some really good, um, some really, really good uh, stories this week to talk about. Awesome. And then I guess the only other thing I'd like call out is last week we did mention that we were going to bring up Ozempic and dive into these 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 uh, weight loss drugs. And we are not ready yet. <laughs> we are going to not talk about yet. it at a different time. It's fair <laughs> to say the, the world is distracted with very pressing issues and we've not collected the feedback we wanted. And at Green Queen, we're still working on a story. It's going to it's probably going to be a couple of weeks, but stay tuned. But, the the story around Ozempic and its its counterparts and what it's doing to the food system and how it's going to affect future food innovation is critical. And frankly, anyone in the space that is not thinking about it should be thinking about it. But stay tuned for more insights on that. So thanks again, everyone, um, for listening. Remember to subscribe where you get your podcasts. We're on Apple. We're on Spotify. We're on Google. Um, and we also want to hear from you. So let us know what you think. Every week I get messages and so does Steve and it's just fantastic. Um, just a little uh, a little plug. I will be at Verge 23, the Green Biz Climate Tech Conference next week in San Jose. I will be there in person all the way from Hong Kong. If anyone is around or at that event, please look me up. I'm not able to spend as much time in San Francisco as I would have hoped because I'm then hopping on a plane to go to Agri Food Week in Singapore, which is right after. Um, and it takes a really long time to get from San Jose to Singapore with the time difference. So I'm losing two days. But anyhow, um, if anyone's at Singapore Food Agri Week, look me up. And um, I'm excited to share my thoughts. I'll be in the middle of the verge when we talk next. All right. We'll see everyone next week. Bye.